and welcome back to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. This week, we're continuing last week's discussion of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings with special guest Joe Rake, an actor, director, and playwright who has been living and working in New York City his whole life. Joe is the founder and artistic director of Occupy Verona, which has produced flash mob-style Shakespeare performances around the city. He's most recently been writing plays for the socially isolated script readings and appearing on the Zoom sitcom Dead Enders. We're picking up this week pretty much right where we left off, discussing uh, orcs as an allegory for fear of the other. There's a a, a, a satirical essay that's referred to again and again uh, called Senator Bilbo. I believe it's by a guy named Andy Driscoll. I, I haven't yeah, read I it. Saw this. I haven't read it. I haven't I, I've seen it written about. Uh, and the idea is uh, it's 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 sort of a take on a real live guy whose name was Bilbo, uh, Senator Bilbo, right. but he uses it as a Middle Earth commentary where Bilbo Baggins is now a senator arguing that we shouldn't let the orcs emigrate to the Shire because they'll spoil it with their presence. And then it becomes a really disturbing allegory for, you know, the white suburbs and property values and whether certain people are allowed there or not. Um, I think it's fun that we keep bringing up allegory because Tolkien so famously hated the idea <laughs> that his work would be considered allegory yeah. like a specifically an allegory to world war ii this always oh, yeah, fascinated right. me you know so people people tried to uh you know draw that connection with world war ii the allies coming mm-hmm. all together to you know fight the dark forces and he rejected that so vehemently mm-hmm. and he would say that if i was doing an allegory which i'm not obviously then obviously the men of Gondor would have taken the ring for themselves, Mm -hmm. used it against uh, Mordor, Mm -hmm. uh, conquered Mordor, and then, you know, instated their own uh, tyrannical um, rule. And hobbits in both cases would have been uh you know abused and enslaved and i just remember thinking so in his mind there is something yeah. in the world in history that could be considered analogous to the one ring yeah and it's like what was that like what was he talking about was it the atomic bomb i, d- or- I don't <laughs> I love that we're taking his rejection of allegory as proof that he thought about it. And he's no, got a but thing. he definitely, but he said that. He said, like, if it was an allegory, they would have used the ring. Well, maybe what he's really talking about is like economic supremacy, the state of being mm. a first world power. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the stuff we're talking about didn't come into my mind uh, until I heard this awesome Radio Lab episode called The Ring and I. Have you heard this? I have not. That sounds great. I'm going to send this to you because I feel yes, like it's please. going to be extremely your shit. So they did uh they 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 did this episode a few years ago that is about uh Wagner's The Ring Cycle, which for those of you listening who aren't in the know is this very famous formative uh trilogy of operas based on Norse mythology. Uh Pretty sure it was based on Bugs Bunny and Elmer 
but yes, of course, you you might know more than than I know about. You know it. what? Just to, just allow me to be wrong on my own podcast. <laughs> uh, based based in North Norse mythology and a lot of the same in founding influences that are present in the story of the Ring. There's this whole story of like the the gold from the Rhine being stolen and being smelted into a ring and evil mm-hmm. following in its wake, and the world mm-hmm. is ultimately not put right again until the gold is restored to where it came from and right. there's a character who's like Gollum and there's a character who's like Aragorn and there's there's stuff going on in there and uh I bring this up because there's a discussion in this episode about how you know the the gold is symbolic not of a thing but of a concept of greed of the quest for power of the quest for mm-hmm. supremacy um, and what makes Frodo so such, so the perfect hero for this is that he has no desire for supremacy. He has no desire to be the hero. He has no desires really. Uh, but that said, like your your whole your whole point about Tolkien rejecting allegory is great and amusing to me because it's reflective of this conversation between authors and the people who read them that's been going right. been going on since the dawn of time i'm sure we yeah we feel like we invented it yeah millennials but no, <laughs> not quite <laughs> no and it's it's this idea that authors want to tell stories and readers want to decide what those stories are about uh especially like yeah. English English acad- academics um, very much want stories to be indicative of something, allegories of something. And you go back and you ask the authors, and nine times out of ten, they will say, "No, I wanted to tell a story. Uh, if if I were trying to talk about this other thing, I would have just talked about that other thing." I don't think that makes either side wrong. By the way, I, I think that the yeah. ultimate the ultimate kind of mystery and and beauty of art is that it means something different to everyone who sees it. And it can be profoundly specific and personal to everybody who encounters it, both the creator and the audience, for completely different reasons. Like, uh, you know, um, uh, Tolkien was, I'm sure, not writing about the mental health journeys of battling encroaching depression and needing important support systems and the loss, the the joy and the loss you feel when you finish your journey and you defeat it at the other end. But that's one of the things I get out of it. And that doesn't mean that it's just because he didn't canonically mean it doesn't mean that it's not true. Um, It's the same, the same reason I believe that like a, a reader's decision about what a character looks like or sounds like is as true and real as what the author meant. And that's, glorious that's what makes yeah. books so compelling that's why one of the reasons why lord of the rings continues to be popular and relevant because we because we project allegories onto it where none were necessarily canonically intended i, I think that that is all incredibly true and uh you know the the reasons that that i've gone back to it so often and it means so much to me, I think are very similar. Just um, the things that I have uh, found in it and mm-hmm. taken from it, and you know the truths that I've been able to glean, um, just like everyone. Uh, and I think it speaks to its power that so many people find so many different things. I think it is worth it 
to uh, to delve and try and see, you know, maybe what he had in mind or was intending or, uh, or, or what was driving him. And I think it's, uh, it's likely that his experience in world war one, when he was 22 and pretty much his entire generation in England was Mm -hmm. wiped out, uh, demographically speaking by that war. Mm Mm-hmm that kind of comes back around to the way I think of orcs. You know, if, if you want to like paint the orcs with a broad brush, it would sort of just be this, you know, general aggro uh, sensibility, mm-hmm. you know, always spoiling for a fight, always, you know, ready to, um, to lash out. Those, those are the things that maybe identify Mordor more than any kind of, uh, you know, geopolitical power that might have been around at the time. Just like this idea of hack, burn, dominate that infected, has infected, still infects so many, uh, so many governing societies and first world countries that's kind of where my mind goes when I consider, you know, what was he trying to get at? Because Wagner, I think it's, I think it's, it's likely that Wagner was coming from a place of white supremacy. Like I have no, as no doubt, like (laughs) wherever we like for, for as much as Tolkien was not as woke as I would have liked him to be, and he was definitely a product of his time. Everything I know of Wagner, which admittedly is not that much, is that he was straight up, straight up white supremacist. Uh, and I, and I think you know it comes it comes back to that like idea of what's explicit and what's implicit, and and you know I I think that like if you were to ask him if his books had anything to say about racism. He'd probably say no because allegories are stupid. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> you know, uh, but he might have also brought up, uh, you know, the relationship of Legolas and Gimli, yeah, uh, and the ultimate arc of them becoming, you know, the, the the best of friends and living out their lives together, coming from a place of you know such uh, animosity between races. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes up for all of the toxic stuff and uh, and the problematic stuff that we've been talking about it, but he does have explicit things to say about, you know, different groups that have feelings about each other uh, and, and, you know, how they can and should interact. One of the legacies of this book, uh, one of the, the more toxic legacies, is that it seems to have found a home, a, a, a place of love and privilege in the alt-right movement uh, in a way that frankly baffles me. Uh, yeah, And I think it, it's partly because, you know, there's nothing I take out of the book that supports alt-right neo-Nazi uh, dogma. It's also just the the same way I can't imagine 
people I love having political ideologies I fundamentally disagree with. I also can't imagine political political ideologies I fundamentally disagree with coming out of things that I love. Um, but I think I, I I think where this comes from uh, is that there is this undercurrent of racial purity in these books because there is. Mm-hmm. The implicit idea, as we talked about before, that there are some races of men that are more noble than others, and there are some that are uh, less noble, less long-lived. There's the whole idea of of Aragorn from the race of Numenor, whose bloodline is failing, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. but he's he's the last scion of the most noble race of men. Yeah. There's the idea. Yeah. Whenever we talk about Gondor, all of a sudden, you know, we we become so obsessed with bloodlines mm-hmm. and blood purity. It's like, you know, are, are we Death Eaters? Yeah. For all, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't take a lot of stretching to draw that um that straight line to eugenics mm-hmm. um you know even though uh it's clearly laid out as a theological myth mm-hmm. that has no basis in the reality of uh people in 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 the world yeah um i think that you know, I can I can see them saying, "Oh, you like Lord of the Rings? Then you must be in favor of so and so." That I will not even sure. you know, put into words. No, we shall not speak their name. Uh, I, I mean, like while Lord of the Rings was published after World War II, uh, a lot of the mythology of Middle Earth was developed by Tolkien in the in the years predating it, when uh, mm-hmm. Western culture was coming out of the, the anthropology of Western culture was coming out of eugenics was coming at eugenics from a perspective of this is science scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we take Darwin as science, that species evolve by breeding their best qualities together. And then the best scion of that species is what prevails. Then we can take that into uh, we can take that into our own hands and right. just speed up evolution by purposely uh, breeding by purposely breeding the best people together. And that was kind of accepted until Hitler took it to its logical conclusion. And that's when science and anthropology started really looking at this and going, no, 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 race is a myth and it's a dangerous myth and we can't look at it this way. Okay, uh, it's Abby here, omnipresent editing Abby, uh, interrupting the podcast for a little bit of an audio footnote, because I just don't feel great about dropping the sentence race is a myth in the middle of my podcast without providing abundant context. So let's unpack. Um, let's start. Let's start with talking about eugenics a little bit, which uh, just a second ago I described as being the theory that we can take evolution into our own hands by preemptively identifying the best superior specimens of the human race and breeding them together to create a master race. Um, this is stupid, and it makes no sense for a variety of reasons amongst them being that that's not what survival of the fittest means. It doesn't mean some subjective measure of best and strongest and supreme. We'll get into what that actually means in a second. Um, Secondarily, if that is what survival of the fittest meant, then eugenics means that uh, 
the subjective measurement of who is best and strongest is very much in the hands of whoever's in charge of the science, which is dangerous because three, the logical progression of that is that we'll get somebody in charge who thinks that the best idea to speed up evolution is not only to breed together the best versions of the human species, but to imprison, sterilize, and exterminate the, quote, worst versions of the human species, something that we saw at full play in Hitler's Germany, and that's getting well underway in Stephen Miller's America. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please Google forced hysterectomies at the border. Anyway, Back to that in a second. So race. Uh, myth is probably not the word I wanted to use here. What I'm really talking about is what I learned in college anthropology class, which is that race is a cultural, political, and historical construct, but not actually a scientific one. Scientifically, uh, the science community has been unable to find any biological basis for the concept of race. Genetically, there is no gene or sequence of genes in the human genome, which in isolation can repeatedly, dependably, to a scientific burden of proof, accurately indicate that a special cross-section of where you come from and what you look like that we think about when we think about race. Uh, in fact, there is more genetic diversity within racial subgroups than there is between racial subgroups. Or to put that another way, you are more likely to be more genetically similar to someone who does not look like you than someone who does, which means a couple of things. Uh, a of all, those home DNA tests where you swab your cheek and mail it in and they're supposed to tell you what percentage of you is from where are uh, at best shaky guesswork and at worst total BS. Uh, more importantly, the doctrine of eugenics, the idea that we can just by looking at somebody determine whether or not their genes are superior, and from that determine whether or not they're the best version of humanity, is fundamentally scientifically flawed. In fact, that genetic diversity is what allows the human race to survive and thrive, because survival of the fittest does not mean who is best and strongest. Survival of the fittest means who has the genetic mutation that's best fit to the current environmental circumstances? Uh, the way evolution works is that nature has provided our species, really any species, with such a wide variety of genetic mutation uh, so that somewhere within the species, somebody out there has the genetic mutation that will survive whatever is thrown at us. And that person will be able to multiply, survive, and thrive. Say that the ozone disappears and the sun's rays become too strong for light-skinned humans to bear. People with more melanin in their skin are going to be able to survive that. Or say that uh, due to an extinction event or due to human intervention, the food chain alters in such a way that meat is no longer a viable part of the human diet. Well, then people who are genetically predisposed to thrive on a plant-based diet are going to survive and thrive and carry the species forward. Evolutionarily speaking, it actually behooves us to use science to preserve genetic diversity as best we can, and not to contract it. Because if we were to follow the eugenic model and uh, create what we perceive to be a superior, pure race of humans, we'd actually be creating a type of humans that are so deeply inbred and related to each other that not only are they probably diseased already, but They've given away all of that wide variety of genetic mutation that could have been useful adaptation to future extinction events. Does that make sense? 
Biologically, race is a fiction and a dangerous one. However, culturally, politically, and historically, race is very real. It is a fact. It is recordable, statistically provable, undeniable that we all walk through very different worlds based on where we come from, what we see when we look in the mirror, what we see when we look at each other, and how we've been conditioned to think about those differences. Uh, race is a thing. But also it's a thing to celebrate, because just as genetic diversity is what allows the species to survive and thrive, cultural diversity is what makes the species beautiful. The wide variety of religious experience, uh, uh, geographic experience, linguistic experience, culinary experience that comes from different ethnicities that make up different races creates such a multifaceted viewpoint on the human experience that the world becomes bigger simply by the nature of how many of us are looking at it at once. Just as it is our duty to the race to preserve as much genetic diversity as we can, it is our duty to ourselves to preserve and protect as much cultural diversity as we can if we are to live in a vibrant, beautiful world worth living in. Okay, that was uh, less of a footnote and more of a TED Talk, but uh, I think that was everything I wanted to say right here. Sorry for the interruption. Uh, and now, back to the podcast. I think it's helpful, uh, you know, to look at what, you know, Tolkien actually said mm -hmm. about those things when he was asked because he was asked. Mm -hmm. um, because... Uh, you know, believe it or not, people have been peddling this bullshit uh, for hundreds of years. Um, and I think like there's even a letter he wrote because when they wanted to uh, print The Hobbit in Germany mm -hmm. and they asked him, you know, uh, before before printing it, they wanted to know if he was Aryan. He had to sign a, I forget what it's called, but it was like an official document of Nazi Germany that certified his Aryan blood. And they needed that on file before they would publish it in German. Yeah, and I think he, uh, well, I think first he um, corrected them on the use of Aryan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The most, Which, the, the most Tolkien <laughs> academic move. Yeah, and then and then I think he pretty much told them to fuck off. Well, I'm 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 pulling this from uh, again my new best friend uh, Dimitri Fimi. Um, he 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 wrote two different things to uh, Stanley Unwin, who I believe was his publisher, concerning written and learning Verlag's proposed German translation of The Hobbit, and here's. Here's the first quote. Personally, I should be inclined to refuse to give any bestatigung, which is what you call the uh, confirmation of Aryan origin. Personally, I should be uh -huh. inclined to refuse to give any confirmation, although it happens that I can, and let a German translation go hang. In any case, I should object strongly to any such declaration appearing in, in print. I do not regard the probable absence of all Jewish blood as necessarily honorable, and I have many Jewish friends and should regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribed to the holy, pernicious, and unscientific race doctrine. And then the next version is, uh, 
But if I am to understand that you are inquiring, this is probably the version that he authorized to be sent to those translators. But if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. The main part of my descent is purely English. I have been accustomed nonetheless to regard my German name with pride and continued to do so throughout the period of the late regrettable war in which I served in the English army. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. Yeah, so uh, I think he made that pretty clear. It's pretty unambiguous how he felt about Nazism. It's 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 letters like this and a few others I have read that incline me to think that Tolkien's racism is of the brand of he's a product of a uh, white educated industrialist rich democracy, uh, which is a sociological term whose acronym is weird, which I love. Uh, he was a product yeah. of weird culture uh, that reflected back what what was valued in his society. I, I would say. Given, you know, when he lived and where he came from, uh, it is unlikely that he wasn't harboring, uh, you know, some deep seated Mm -hmm. uh, internal biases, uh, possibly external. Uh, I think, you know, England in particular uh, has had to deal with a great deal of disconnect. Uh, uh, You know, I think it wasn't until the last century that the citizens of the UK began to um, experience something that looked like that. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, and so I, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, all of a sudden you get perspective and you understand socio-political realities that it has taken us, you know, another hundred years to, uh, not even fully grasp. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that you do change and you do, uh, begin to see the world, in a more humanistic uh, lens. And uh, and I think that's how something like Lord of the Rings, which uh, puts love and, you know, friendship above every other virtue. Yeah. And, uh, and rewards uh, affection and rewards courage uh and the the looking to of all people um i think that you know that that is the type of journey you are on if uh if you're creating something like this under the guise of just wanting an extra long pamphlet for your new elvish language yeah hey there it's me again um one more and this one will be short but uh 
So it's a weird thing about making a podcast that uh, you spend a lot of time listening to yourself, especially if you're editing your own podcast like I am. And I thought going into this that the hardest thing would be the sound of my voice, uh, which isn't that hard, actually. Uh, I actually find myself quite pleasant at this point. But the hard part is listening to the sound of my own thoughts. Um because I listen to myself on this podcast, circling ideas and trying to come out with fully formed thoughts. And when I listen back, either I hear myself and think that isn't what I meant, or I hear myself and think, oh my God, I didn't know I thought that. And often that is baffling and embarrassing. Uh, all of which is to say, I am, I've been working on this bit of audio for a couple of weeks now, and uh, I am conscious of the fact that I spent the first half hour of this episode, and no small part of the last episode, really, um, carefully and lovingly unpacking all of the ways in which Tolkien was not responsible for his racism. <sighs> Look, um, I mean, I, I, I certainly do think that there is a fundamental difference in someone who goes out of their way to exclude people of color from their narratives because they fundamentally don't value people of color versus someone who just never thought about it. Um, and I do think that there is such value in what we have from Tolkien's personal writing, where he spoke out against apartheid and against the Holocaust. And I mean, he did write a novel that is all about racial unity. It is about diverse races banding together to fight a common evil and overcoming their prejudices. But it's also a novel that does that without having any actual diversity in it. And uh, I wish... I wish I'd spent more time focusing on that, because that's a real issue. Uh, I take for granted the fact that when I go and see a fantasy movie, it's about white people with swords and superpowers, and people of color are lucky to be in it as either villains or people who die tragically to create emotional resonance. Spoiler alerts for Game of Thrones. Um, I am not yet equipped to unpack all of that on my own. Uh, and I don't really have a stirring conclusion for this thought. I just, I just wanted to send up a flare, I guess, and uh, let you know that I know uh, that I have put more energy into defending the dead white guy than I have into exploring the feelings of the living, diverse audiences. And that's a problem. And that's something I'm going to go work on. All right. Back to the podcast. I mean, I think the important thing about interpreting Tolkien is to uh, weigh his professed, weigh the professed values and the professed lessons more heavily than the secret meanings that you pick up in, in the gaps where he maybe didn't cover things so well, um, which is part of how I am able to see so much that reflects me, uh, 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 that reflects me and that I reflect back to and that touches me and fulfills me, even though this is a book that does not serve women fairly well. Uh, Tolkien, and, and I say that the women are uh, paragons and, and they're, they're, they're paragons and they're stand-ins for fascinating people, but they really are just sketches. He, he's not good. Yeah. He, he's not good at filling women in as characters. Um, it's one of the things that the movie is so smart smart about is that uh, 
cuts are made to expand Arwen's character and make her a bit more three-dimensional and have more agency as opposed to the book where she is just there to be beautiful and looked upon and longed for by Aragorn. Um, And she fares a bit better in the movie. Eowyn is, you know, a cold and icy shield maiden in the book who longs for action. In the movie, she is that, but she also has affections and rage and anger and uh, I would die for Eowyn. Galadriel is very similar, I think, in the movie to the way she's written in the book, it, but she's also played by Kate Blanchett, who who just illuminates everything she touches with the light of a thousand suns. Um, when I was a kid reading Lord of the Rings, I was conscious that the women weren't that interesting and that I couldn't really tell most of them apart and that I would have to flip back and forward to figure out which women, which woman we were talking about because they were so similar. I wasn't conscious that that was a sociological problem that I could ask to be resolved until much later, because we are Mm -hmm. in many ways products of the art we are given. You know, as kids, we learn about how the world is and how the world should be by the stories we're told. And listen, most of the stories that have been written and uh, like still the, the, the vast, uh, expanse of the Western canon of the literature that we lionize is is literature that's written from this white patriarchal perspective. It took me a while yes. to figure out that it's it's not only is it okay to say out loud, I find this woman boring because this great author doesn't know how to write women. And it's okay to say, we deserve better. Point being, uh, Tolkien as kind of the template of high fantasy literature and everything that came after sets this pattern of princesses and castles. Um, He he also made great strides because he gave us Eowyn. And I would argue that without Eowyn, you get no Arya Stark or or Sansa Stark for that matter. Um, George R.R. Martin's shortcomings about women being saved for another podcast uh, uh, but by and large, his women are beautiful and wise and there to give gifts to the male adventurers. And the male adventurers are the ones we care about. And they are the three-dimensional characters. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'd say that like the majority of the notes I was taking, uh, in this last rewatch, um, had to do with the, uh, the, you know, this issue of gender non-representation. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it, it is so just like right there. But um, yeah, there is, there's a kind of functionality that is just unfortunate. Yeah. And, um, and they are really just there to be, you know, visually admired. Even Galadriel, who is like, you know, top three most powerful beings in the world so much of the text surrounding her is guys fighting about how hot she is. Yes, precisely. <laughs> and that she like hypnotizes uh, people with her beauty and that she's beautiful right. and terrible to look upon because she's so gorgeous you will you will lose all function of reason. Right. And uh, and like I agree I love Eowyn and I'm so thankful for Eowyn but I've kind of feel like beyond just sort of that uh, that literary choice mm-hmm. uh, to have her go on this specific journey and um, 
and, and be the one to uh hey, spoiler alert guys oh god spoiler alert uh, there's someone out here know, who's seen every part of lord of the rings but what we are explicitly <laughs> about to talk about <laughs> uh kills the the witch king of angmar which you know it needs to be said there are like three named villains mm-hmm. who aren't just like you know grunts right. like grishnak right you know but like there is sauron who is killed by gollum mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. shouts mm-hmm. uh there is saruman who is killed by worm tongue and then impaled and upon the, is... his own iron machine work which is beautiful Love, love it. it. Love you. Love to see. Love it. a visual metaphor. Uh, and the Witch King of Angmar, you know, third main bad guy, uh, done the, the only one killed in a heroic way mm-hmm. by uh, by Aon with the sweet assist from uh, from Marietta. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, but she. But like even even like even the choice that Mary like gives the assist it's like come on and i mean jrr we were so close he was so close i i love i like aon is um not only do you not get an Arya stark you also don't get a brienne of tarth uh yeah, yeah. um which uh just just every time i think of brienne of tarth i just light up with joy inside because she's the best of all the things um aon's whole journey being she doesn't want to be a woman in a fairy tale she or or rather she wants mm-hmm. to be a woman she wants to be a a woman in a fairy tale but a different fairy tale she she doesn't want to be the woman in the high tower who the prince gets to marry at the end she wants to be a woman who is also the prince she wants to be the one who yeah. fights the dragon she wants to be the one who goes on adventures she wants to be the one who rescues herself from the tower and the journey she goes on is that in order to do that she has to become a man which is not new uh it's a it's a trope we see over and over again in fairy tale and disney movie um and shakespeare for that matter uh and and she goes and 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 she has that kind of beautiful feminist moment of right before she kills the witch king of angmar he he pulls kind of a reverse Macbeth and says no man can kill me she rips off the helmet and says i am no man and just kills the motherfucker it's great it's wonderful why wasn't Eowyn part of the fellowship from the beginning? That's what I want. Why couldn't we have... And it's it's kind of why grown-up Abby loves something that child completionist child Abby would be scandalized by. There's this kind of growing movement right. from, from parents uh, to just swap the genders of the characters in the books they read to their children. I was reading this essay, this essay by this woman who talks about how um, when she was reading The Hobbit to her daughter, her daughter decided that Bilbo was a girl because it's a book about somebody finding some jewelry. So now whenever she reads The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings to her daughter, Bilbo is a girl. And uh, in Narnia, uh, she switched Peter and Susan because Susan is such a kind of nothing character and Peter gets to do so many yeah. more interesting things, which makes it interesting that, you know, spoiler alerts for Narnia, guys. Uh, yeah, sorry, folks. That now, quote, Peter is the one who doesn't get to Narnia at the end because he got too busy with nylons and makeup, um, it, it, which which becomes a whole nother Narnia conversation for another podcast, <laughs> I gotta say. That's great. It's great, right? Um, I mean- 
depending on your depending on your interpretation is that he doesn't get to go there because he's too into girls wearing makeup and nylons in which case why the sex shaming of Mm. peter or is that he doesn't get to go there because he is uh cross-dressing or trans in which case well narnia way to be not at all progressive (laughs) like the problem there's no way to solve the problem of susan slash peter not getting into narnia i have so many so many problems with Narnia. Uh, again, that's a that's another podcast. Where was I? Where was I? What was I saying? Yeah, um, Tolkien never gave himself the opportunity to just write his book and then decide. Okay, you know what? Legolas is a girl now. Let's just change the pronouns. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing else that needs to change about Legolas. Um, at, or Gimli. I mean, Gimli has a whole or any or yeah. any of them. It, it, it's really uh it's really true and um i i'm kind of uh encouraged by you know the kind of release of when you realize that yeah uh and um and what and what opens up i don't know what is going to happen with this amazon show about uh aragorn baby aragorn uh, that is supposed to be happening. I do know that the cast is not entirely white. That's nice. That's real nice. Uh, so there's so there's that. Um, I which they better Tom Bombadil better show up. <laughs> now we're talking we're talking about a long form television show. If it's a miniseries. I do not see how. There's tons of room for Tom Bombadil. <laughs> he thrives in a miniseries <laughs> environment. He really does. <laughs> If we can get um, however many episodes about Bran and the fucking three-eyed raven, we can get <laughs> Tom goddamn Bombadil. Hi, it's Abby. Are you having fun yet? If you are, why not take a minute to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts? Ratings help Apple connect us with more listeners like you, and more listeners will eventually lead us to cool things like new guests, live shows, and everything else we need to make better episodes for you. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. And now, back to the show. You wanted to uh, make sure that we talked a little bit about the the record of the movies, which did some great sure, some great things yeah. in adaptation. Um, yeah, but also falls into some of these pitfalls. It does. I think um, if you wanna if you wanna get into specifically, uh, you know, the choice to, um, you could say adhere to the books and make it entirely about white men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, uh, I would argue that they didn't necessarily have to do that, Mm -hmm. like, uh, that they would have been able to work it out with the Tolkien estate Mm -hmm. to, you know, make Mary or Aragorn, uh, a person of color. Yeah. Uh, but they chose not to do that. Um, and so the only people of color in the movie are, um, you know, people in thick orc makeup, uh, or the, the South runs and the, and the Haradrim that we were talking about before who don't receive any lines whatsoever in the extended of towers. There is that one moment where Faramir 
uh, has the little speech about, you know, humanizing the Easterling mm-hmm. that is, you know, dead, uh, you know, which begs the question, why is the only good Easterling a dead Easterling? Why also, if you're going to have a speech about, I feel sorry for this Easterling who maybe doesn't care about this war and uh, got drafted into this and is far from home and didn't want to be here. Why are you giving the speech while you're standing over his corpse with your arrow sitting in his gut? Yes. Like you were the one who just shot. It's him. that meme that, 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 that meme of the guy like shooting someone over his shoulder and then saying, <laughs> yeah. Who drafted this man into yeah. this war? Eric Andre. <laughs> <laughs> That's far from here. <laughs> um yeah. So uh I, I mean I'm I'm glad they included that, at least in the in the special edition. Mm-hmm. But it's still hard just like thinking about the casting dynamics of those movies, uh, particularly when you think about something like the Battle of Helm's Deep, which was an ungodly number of night shoots Mm -hmm. and just awful conditions that have become like kind of legendary in their terribleness uh, in the industry. And just like, you know, how many hundreds of, uh, you know, of maori stunt professionals were hired on that and had to go through all that in the makeup uh, while in 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 the makeup yeah and in the in and in all that heavy armor the the sleep uh schedule that you're on with a night shoot Mm -hmm. like that um torturous it's it, it 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 seems like and so it um i think it brings up a lot of uh, really important issues about ethics in casting, in uh, production um, that, you know, like that we we need to be doing a lot better. I say we, I am, I am not in the film industry. But like, no, but know. as a member of the uh, arts, like you feel uh, both, I, yes. am, I am not empowered to change anything, but I'm empowered <laughs> to feel all the guilt for everything that's going wrong. Like it's a very <laughs> sure. weird place to for stand sure. in. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think that th- there is, that there, there does need to be uh, an accounting, you know, for this film in the way that they chose to, uh, kind of keep those ingrained yeah. uh, structures. And again, it's something that comes up on this on this podcast a lot is that it, it, part of the problem is that these choices aren't made in a vacuum. Um, you know, to say, well, we were being we 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 were being as accurate as possible to the source material, which was written by this uh, white Anglo-Saxon scholar who was purposely writing about a fake mythological history for Northern Europe where people are white. Like, yes, that's very sound reasoning, but that's the story of Western fantasy novels before and since, and we know better now. And that's the responsibility. The responsibility we have as a culture. When, when you're adapting pre-existing work from one medium to another, or when you're reviving or rebooting or remaking pre-existing work in some capacity, one, one problem that you're trying to solve is, you know, how can I translate this from page to screen or from old movie to new movie or whatever it is? How can I transfer this from X to Y with... Uh, 
as much of the spirit and intent of the work intact as possible. But the other question you're trying to answer is how can I make this relevant for today and the way we look at the world today? And, you know, that's what we should be talking about when we talk about an update. We're not talking about uh, suddenly su- suddenly all of the characters, I don't know, uh, have fucking Blackberries and email or whatever. We're talking about like now all of these characters uh, exist in a world that reflects our values of today where uh, 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 Gondor is multicultural and multi-ethnic because it's a freaking, it's, it's the biggest city in Middle Earth. Of course, it would attract people of all walks of life, uh, of all walks of life. Of course, everyone would move there. Of course, it would be the, 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 the English accented version of New York City, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and like I was saying, I, I am encouraged that, uh, conversations like that are happening so early on in, um, in the creations of, you know, more stories like this and, uh, ap- and specific adaptations, uh, of this story. I, th- there were like just a few kind of issues just like watching it again Mm -hmm. marathoning it right now things that i'm seeing in 2020 that uh that just kind of stuck out uh a a lot of it's like you know kind of benign sexism Mm -hmm. or uh or just like microaggressions you know that there is kind of a cultural diversity in brie and there's sort of a disdain for it. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, the way it's shot, like, ooh, all these different people hanging out together. What's what's up with this that? This is a dark and dangerous um, place to be because there are people who <laughs> don't look like me here. One of them's holding a ferret for no apparent reason. It's like my favorite random thing in Brie is that there's just a man <laughs> holding a malevolent looking ferret. Like, of course. I, I maintain Brie is where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be in that tavern in that moment with that guy with that ferret. <laughs> um, something. <laughs> um, so uh, at one point, the orcs are wondering why they're keeping Merry and Pippin alive, mm-hmm. and the one guy just like kind of snarls, "Did they give good sport?" <laughs> It's like that's a rape joke. Is it? Though, oh right? my god! I guess no. So, isn't I it? thought it was like I no. thought it was like the the most dangerous game. We set them loose in the forest oh. and go chasing them. Yeah, yeah, it might mm. be. My, my mind just immediately went to <laughs> uh, in Game of Thrones territory. Yeah, I mean, I, I I must be just more pure of heart and innocent of thought than you, Joe Rake. Uh, I think that's definitely <laughs> true. I'll have to. I'll, <laughs> I have to look into I that. I don't think that's frankly. true, uh, but okay. Just I don't, I... Gimli, when he's on the horse talking to Eowyn oh, about uh, dwarf women, are often mistaken it's for weird. Often mistaken for dwarf men, and Aragorn says it's the beards. It's, it's, it's a very strange flavor of transphobia, but it is. But uh, here's the thing: know, I, I, I put to you, Joe, that it is an element of woke Gimli because Gimli. Gimli describes this like they're so attractive. Like he never says that they're unattractive, yeah. or he never says I'm not attractive. Oh, Gimli is into he is it. 
Gimli is into it. it like he is into <laughs> androgynous dwarf women. Like the the fact that they are indistinguishable from dwarf men is not a problem for Gimli, son of Glowin. I mean, let's not forget later on in the victory party when he's drinking and toasting to dwarves that go swimming with little hairy yes. women. Yes, uh, you know Gimli. I mean. G- Gimli is out there for whatever you got. <laughs> Gimli is down. <laughs> I mean, Gimli is also, you know, he, he he we talked about how Gimli and Legolas are the the racial foes turned to friends trope. Gimli is the one who goes hardest from Lothlorien is evil, it's ruled by an evil witch, and then he meets Galadriel and he falls hard. Like Oh, he yeah. yeah. He's done at that he point. He's all in for elf women in addition to dwarf women he's never like oh man dwarf women are hideous next to this it's like it's oh no another beautiful thing to add to my pantheon of beautiful things nobody went from i will never even look at something that hideous to i will kill you if you don't say she is the most beautiful (laughs) creature on this earth oh man Faster than Gimli, son of Glowin. Oh, oh, I love Gimli, son of Glowin, so much. Um, and finally, and honestly, this might be one of the most disturbing things on the rewatch. Oh, is just the how casually we are just to accept the constant physical abuse of Gollum. Yeah, like from all sides from characters who are soft yeah and we love them for their softness from sam and faramir they just beat the shit out of him and like most of the time he has he is in no control whatsoever in those like there are times when he's fighting and you know and you know being a real gross ruthless bastard and Gollum is, I mean, Go- Go- Gollum was my professed favorite character when I first read these books, and he will always and forever hold a sweet, safe space in my heart because Gollum is such a wonderful um, exploration of the multi-dimensions of a villain. Like for for all of the for for all of the crimes, the, the all of the crimes and microaggressions that are uh, committed against orcs and uryks and goblins for their evil, just because they exist. Gollum is the right, one yeah. w- where we spend the most time examining his his development and his motivations, mm-hmm. and the most is, is 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 speculated and commented about him by Frodo, by Gandalf, by other characters about who he might have been. Like Frodo saves him because Frodo looks at him and sees that could be me if I held on to this ring too yeah. long. If I held on to this ring too long, I would be that. So I need to save him because I need to believe that he is capable of being saved because then I'm capable of being saved. Right. And the and and the you know awful debilitating truth is that he couldn't be saved, which in a different way speaks to the truth about Frodo's situation and that like he can't be truly saved in the sense of being able to go back to like it was he can't be restored to what he would have been and what he was yeah i think uh that you're right that uh 
being there with Gollum and getting, you know, so much time with him uh, forces us to examine, you know, like everything we're, we're, we're coming to accept about, you know, the, 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 the lower creatures and, you know, and, you know, the orcs and the people and the, the, the ones who have been shaped and warped mm-hmm. by uh, wickedness. Um, I don't know if he was always, if like I would have named him my favorite character, but definitely when I was first reading or listening to Lord of the Rings, he was the one whenever like a hint of Gollum was coming up in fellowship that I would pick yeah. up immediately. Yeah. He's such a great character evolution because he's kind of like a comic character in The Hobbit. He's there in one scene and he's there to be the villain who is outsmarted by Bilbo and shake his fist at the heavens and that's it. Uh, he en- he ends up being even more uh, essential yeah. to the story yeah, and to the, the course of history. Yeah. He is... I don't, I, like if if we had another three hours, I could just yeah. talk about Gollum. You, you could do a whole pod on on Gollum. Uh, definitely best character in the movies. I'd say hands down, hands uh, down. Bar um, it, 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 like even if the movies did nothing else, uh, they gave us the gift that is Andy Circus. It's it's too bad they absolutely Ooh. never made a Hobbit movie because I would have loved to see more. <laughs> Andy Circus, and it would have been. So, yeah, they should really get around. It would have to been that. so tragic if they had made a Hobbit movie and it had been anything less than brilliant, especially if they had cast the perfect actor as Bilbo Baggins and then given him only like fifteen minutes of screen time per movie in the middle of all that well, prequely nonsense. I, I, I don't know if they would have offered me the role. I, you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't have quite enough experience. I, I think you could do it. I think you just need to make you just need to make the right friends. All right. In this imaginary movie. That they I never made. I agree. It would be ever. Um, <laughs> uh, God, before before I let you go, because it's getting to be that time, I do want to touch on something that's kind of magical about the Lord of the Rings as a property, is that for, for as much impact as the books themselves had on the shape of like fantasy literature and uh, and modern mythology and all of those things. The movies had this indelible impact on the way people of our generation communicate with each other online. And I'm talking specifically of the language of Lord of the Rings memes. Like yes, the, uh, the my two favorites the the, the vivid, incredible breadth of lord of the rings memes it's marvelous that at this point maybe every frame of the movie has been memed. as well it should be but there are just just yeah. just you there must be an internet rule for if any tumblr conversation goes on long enough eventually someone's going to put up sam saying potatoes uh, on the thread at some point and it happened uh, it did. And, and, and it was glorious because Sam is now, uh, you know, hev- heavily accepted all over the world as the boyfriend you choose in your 30s. Uh, oh, yeah. Because of 
potatoes. <laughs> it's not just because of potatoes. It's because... It's not just because of potatoes. But <laughs> it's because Sam is the ultimate wife guy if his wife is Frodo. He is so here. He's so here for Frodo. For anything Frodo needs, Frodo can do no wrong. I mean, we didn't even have time to... And, and, and we're not going to because we've been going at this for so long. We didn't yeah. even get in into like the classist grossness of the way that Sam is written as the servant of Frodo who is so here for Frodo all the time. Like it comes from this sort of classist English perception of the serving class. uh, Right. Generally a perception had by the master class, you know, right about how their servants love them so much. Exactly. And that's really kind of gross. But if we accept it as red and, and, and the way they really deal with it in the movies where they make them we'll slightly more We'll talk about it equals. in the comments. Yeah, there we go. There we go. In the, you know, in the audio commentary for this episode, right. you and I can <laughs> talk about that at great length. Um, but yeah, Sam, Sam is the ultimate wife guy. And I decided on this recent rewatch that Frodo is asexual but in love with sam like that i i decided i decided that there is i mean there there's always been jokes about the the homoerotic barely subtextual subtext between sam and frodo in this movie and uh, i mean i'd agree with that i think it took him a long time to get there yes uh i think it probably wasn't until sam gives him the ring back in carith yeah. That he realizes, oh my, you've been there all along. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that there is a cut of this movie that's just a, a beautifully wistful, sad uh, romance uh, in the style of A Walk to Remember. <laughs> it it made me think of um, Antonio in, in, in Merchant of Venice, because there's, there's all of that theory that Antonio is in love with uh, What's-His-Face, and uh, part of the reason that he's willing to die at Shylock's hands is because the the man he loves is married to somebody else, so there's nothing left for him. So, it, like, it, it is it is a very kind of rich tradition, I think, in in literature, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to have like this sort of enigmatic older single guy. Yes, I think that sometimes even the writers didn't know what they were tapping into Shakespeare. Shakespeare, I think did Shakespeare knew. Um, Uh, Tolkien. I don't know. Maybe who knows? Even knows. I mean, we see, we we see those, those memes floating around. There's one that's these, uh, you know, historians have determined that these two, ancient Roman skeletons that they found holding hands. The anthropologists have now determined that both skeletons were male and historians surmise that they might've been very close friends or servants or, and then underneath it, someone says just men being pals doing things that straight (laughs) men do, you know? And I feel like Tolkien I'd be willing to bet Tolkien was a product of that level of academia that was like, huh, I guess extremely heterosexual men just held hands and kissed a lot back in those days, as opposed to maybe they were just in love, dude. Maybe that's what they did. I mean, I I mean, it's not wrong that, um, you know, that one of the nice things about Lord of the Rings is that it uh, espouses a kind of, you know, positive, non-toxic masculinity that does involve lots of like hugs and embraces 
and, and tenderness uh, and forehead and, yeah. kisses and 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 hand holding um and that does i think in some ways come from a time when that you know when that behavior between men wasn't as uh demonized as it has yes. been in recent decades by uh you know kind of conservative uh you know toxic masculinity to- toxic toxic strictures. masculinity no, absolutely. Uh, but you know, te- but like it but it is funny that uh that that like the other side of that is that yes, gay people do exist. Richard Exactly. You know, like- yeah, agreed. A hundred percent agreed. Every every instance of, of, of physical affection and tenderness between two men in Lord of the Rings is not uh, an instance of accidental queer coding. Some of it is right. is is just espousing a world that I agree we we should aspire yeah. to get back to where men are not afraid to show tenderness and affection for each other. But also I do think some of it is accidental queer coding and it's delightful. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, so, particularly Frodo and Sam, uh, I think, you know, just like, and, uh, you, you know, and, and I think just like the, the, the style around them and, uh, and the aesthetic of like the two of them in bag end, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's just like given life to this really nice facsimile of, you know, of, you know, just like, you know, two dads who just like love living in the country. It's very frog and toad. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's getting to be that time, which leaves me with just one question. Uh, Joe, with everything that we've unpacked today and all of the things that I'm sure we have yet to unpack but won't be able to in the limited time we're given, what's your relationship to this property like now? Where does it live in your life? Um. So <clears throat> I just want to... Thank you. First of all, this has been uh, an incredible conversation and uh, so illuminating. Um, I am happy to say that I still love this property, and uh, I think am sort of seeing it in a in a new context now. Uh, based on the conversation we've been having and the research I was doing leading up to this. Um, and now I'm even more interested and committed to seeking out more work that may have been influenced or inspired by, you know, this, you know, tremendous Titan of literature, um, but has found ways of telling stories from a perspective that, uh, that means more to me personally in the world that I live in. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of great work out there that I'm going to look into. And, uh, I think, and I think everyone should, um, and, but uh, but yeah, I I absolutely still hold this work uh, and this whole body of work 
very deep in my heart. Yeah. Same. Uh, I will continue to read and watch and uh, read around and in any other way revisit Lord of the Rings until I die. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I'm always going to find uh, joy in the experience and, and, and find instances of nobility and hope and strength and love and, and uh, adoration for all that is good and right in the world and an affirmation that the smallest person can still make the biggest choice and that the biggest insurmountable battles are still worth fighting no matter what. And I'm still going to hold out hope till the end of my days that, uh, that, that Gandalf's going to show up to take me on a magical quest because he shows up for Bilbo and Frodo on their 50th birthdays. Uh, there's no reason he couldn't have shown up later. Uh, yeah, every day till I die. Um, and even with all of the things we've discussed in mind, it doesn't, it, 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 it gives me new things to look at and new things to think about, but it does not in any way diminish my enjoyment or prevent me from slipping into the world that Tolkien has created. But yes, I, I agree with you that uh, I'm looking forward to, and I believe the task that is set for fantasy writers going forward is to pick up the baton where J.R.R. Tolkien left it and carry it forward instead of staying in the same place. Absolutely. Ugh. That was very beautiful. That was very beautifully put. Thank you. I word good, Joe Rake. You, you I, word I, very good. I word so good. Thank you. <laughs> Joe, I am so, so glad we did this today on so many levels for so many reasons. This was excellent. This was a lot of fun. This thank was you so a, much for inviting me. Thank you so much for bringing the thing I love the most in the world to talk about. <laughs> that was terrifying and and so valuable. Um, Joe, uh, once again... For listeners who want to find more of you and what you do out on the internet, where should they look? Uh, I uh, am introducing new plays that I have been writing. Uh, some of them are based on prompts. Some of them are about, uh, you know, the current crazy times. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can find those at the socially isolated script readings um and uh yeah just people people bring new plays uh they get a, a group of incredibly talented actors to read them uh and it happens uh once a week on saturdays great time fabulous i'll drop the links for that as well as dead enders in uh the show notes uh you can find cringe benefits on facebook twitter and instagram at Cringe Benefits. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild. That's our show for this week. We will be back next week with something new, another childhood favorite that's become a grown-up regret. Uh, thanks so much and bye. Let's get a Hobbit movie going, right? Let's make what <laughs> let's make that Hobbit movie. I wonder if uh, I wonder if if Benedict Cumberbatch is doing anything. He could play at least two things. Absolutely. <laughs>